Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. In 2013, the morning commute turned to a discussion around a shared love of baking and the idea for a home baking kit was born. Fast forward eight years and baked in is sold in thousands of shops and online retailers, from Tesco to Ocado, QVC to Moonpig, in the UK, Europe and North America. Their Baking Club subscription service was named in the Independence Top 15 Food Subscriptions two years in a row, alongside the likes of Grey's, HelloFresh, and Hotel Chocolat. So what drove Joseph Munns to take the plunge from 15 years in software with IBM to launch Baked In, one of Britain's fastest growing subscription businesses? Without further ado, let's get into it. Joe Munns, good morning. Welcome to the uh, Extrology podcast. I really, as always, appreciate you coming on as my guest, I'm really fascinated to find out a little bit more about the story behind Baked In, and uh, we'll explore that in a little more length in due course. But as always, I want to start with the early days. So tell me, where did you grow up and what was early life like for you? Yeah, I guess my my early life wasn't wasn't massively remarkable, yeah, that interesting. You know, um, I grew up, I'm from, from Hampshire, just outside Basingstoke, and got a brother, Patrick, a couple of years younger than me. And you know, fairly normal. Went to university. Um, I wanted to do, I wanted to do sports science. Really been into sport most of my life. And my parents, my parents taught me out of sports science, and they said, "What are you going to do? You know, with sports science, that's your hobby. That's not that's not what you should go and study. You should go and study something, something more practical, something where there's going to be a good job at the end of it." And I was like, "Okay, no worries." And so I ended up doing. Um, the computing uh, A level, and that was my best subject. Uh, so I went to Loughborough University, driven by sport because it's a sporting university. A bit ironic because that's kind of where I gave up lots of sport, but I did a computing and management degree, so half computing, half management science. And I was a, a good level rugby player. I was county rugby, tennis, sort of around you know, the golf kind of team at that point. And I went to Loughborough thinking I'll do all this sport as well. So there you go. I'll marry the two things. I'll go to the best, the country's by far best sporting university and I'll go to a good business school and do all of this. And that was great. And the you know, degree was great, but sport, you know, to get in the teams, to get in the rugby team, you, you need to be national level. So with my, my county experience, I was going to get in like the fourth or fifth team at, at best. And, um, and the same with tennis, you know, I wasn't quite county level at tennis, but I'd been to the trials and I, went and I, was, I would have gotten the fifth team if I was lucky. And so sport just kind of nosedived at that point for me. Um, and then I just went and did the normal university thing and got a good degree, did a did a year out as part of it. That was really good sandwich course at, um, at IBM. So I was a software engineer and then loved that, got offered a job at, back as a software engineer and finished my degree and went back there and did that. And um I think I, I, was, I was quite good at computers. The management side of things, the business study side, I was stronger at. And I quickly became apparent going somewhere like IBM. This is the software labs down in Winchester where they make some pretty serious software. It's the, it's the software like behind 
the software behind bank machines. So it's it makes IBM billions of dollars and it's really deep and technical. And if it stopped working, uh, the, the world's economy would pile in. It's you know really quite fundamental to everything, but it's 40 years old. And I quickly found out that I wasn't that good at computers. And the, you know I was probably the worst at computers when I turned up at IBM. So I quite quickly decided I'd focus myself on the, the management side of the business and differentiate myself that way. Good with people, good at presenting, quite organized, not as organized as I thought it was, it, it turns out, but you know, project management, I thought, go into that side of the business. And that worked really well. And I climbed the corporate ladder for, was IBM for 15 years in total. Um, so my blood was, was well and truly blue at that point. And I worked my way up through the, the management, the management chain and, I just started getting this, getting to the point where I just wasn't really enjoying it, wasn't feeling that fulfilled anymore. And I did then get an opportunity with a little co- a little company we'd bought. So IBM is big in acquisitions, buys lots of companies. We bought a little software company just outside Reading called um, Butterfly Software, and they make backup recovery software. There's about 25 people in the company. And I was probably a little bit junior for the role, but because the soft, the labs where we were down in Winchester, I live in Basingstoke, and this lab was up near near Maidenhead. It wasn't a massive pool of people who were going to be up for driving backwards and forwards to this this place. So, so I got a bit of a got a bit of a, a shot there, and my job was to be dropped in to blue wash. It's called blue washing. Everything's blue at IBM, and you know take them and turn them into part of IBM. And so I was dropped in as the the person to help this blue wash and to help bring all their technical teams over to from you know zero process and red tape to masses of process and red tape. And I was there to explain to them all how good it was going to be being part of the mothership. And IBM's a great company. I never say a bad word about IBM. It was a really good career. But as I started doing that job, um one of the founders, Ian, you know, he'd started the business and he was obviously Going to had just sold it and was was going to be at IBM for a couple more years as an executive and there's a sort of battle between the corporate boy and the you know entrepreneur and he's about the same age as me like super charismatic guy and you know we didn't clash as it were I had a lot of respect for the guy he's awesome but um but you know my job was like the opposite of what he was ah oh, this red tape shit and um. You know, I'm like, no, this is good. These processes are good because this, and you know, they they go and buy a a computer off eBay because it was the cheapest place to buy one. I was like, no, you have to buy the computer from this. You have to go in this database and you fill it in, and it costs this much. That it costs how much? You know, well, that's just the way it works in like corporate worlds. This is how it all works. And so my job was to transition them across. But as I was doing that, I found myself thinking, actually, you know what? I actually prefer to be part of a small company like this is much more interesting to me. So I was in this kind of... Do you remember why? um, I think it's just, I think, I guess I'd been at IBM for 15 years. I didn't love computers, right? And that's, I always said, if I was, if I went into IT and went into more consumer side, like apps or something you can relate to as a consumer more than software that you don't even know exists, right? Most of us don't even know this software behind the, you know, that's sending messages millions of times a second and making sure the transactions are accurate, it just you don't even think about it. You just take it for granted. So it's um, it's not that interesting for a non-techie to work on. So it's quite hard to get excited about it. And something I've found out over the last five years is that if you are genuinely passionate about what you're doing for work, it, it's a total cliche, but it doesn't feel like work. You get up, you know, I get up on Monday morning, and I'm not thinking, oh, I've got to go to work. I'm thinking, great, I've got to go to work. I've got all the stuff I can do, and you know, love um, baking and making cakes and and everything that I'm involved with now. But I think it was just 
it was just more exciting for me, this, this little company. So that was the point where I started baked in as an IBM is brilliant, flexible employer. And they, you know, let you get on with these as long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't compete or conflict with anything that IBM's doing, they're generally pretty happy for you to do what you want in your spare time. So I said to my boss, I said, um, um, got this idea to start a home baking company. What do you think? He's like, yeah, go for it. That's fine. So that's kind of where Bates in started. And I'd always had Homer Simpson with these terrible business ideas over the years where I'd come up with an idea and I'd get a few mates together and we'd do a little bit on it and then we'd lose interest for whatever reason and started a business called Spot Luck. We were going to do kind of like the, the company best of the best with um, spot the ball competitions, win a car. We can do that for low value prizes, you know, like Xboxes and things all going to be online with a little app. We started that and it failed and we moved on. And then I started a business called Peace to Mash and Keen Skier. We were going to, we were going to map all the ski resorts in the world. And then we were eventually going to get people to ski down with video so you could see what a ski run was going to be like. Before. And there's lots of reasons why that's a terrible idea. And that started and fizzled out. And then there was the air shop, big golfer we were going to fly drones over golf this is before drones became a thing like it was enthusiast area to make a drone to make like a hexicopter or whatever they call it, and bought all the parts off ebay never made one before three of us got made this drone made a little golf map try flying one of these early drones in the wind and it's all over the place and the video is awful these days you know 100 quid you can buy one that's going to be like stable and you can fly over the golf course we tried that we crashed it broke gave up that idea so we've got this stream of mini failed businesses and then and then I had this idea with my friend Anna we live shared so we drove from Basingstoke to Winchester it felt like a long commute because pretty much everyone lives around Winchester at, at, at IBM you come from Basingstoke it's half an hour away so I lift shared with my friend Anna who also lived in Basingstoke and we were just talking about all these business ideas that I'd had and they all failed and then I can't remember exactly how it happened I think one of us had, was baked, had baked cake to take into work because cooking has always been a hobby of mine and started talking about the recipe kits that were just becoming really popular at the time. HelloFresh and Gusto, and they were just starting to get traction and people were starting to hear about them. We said, oh, they're great. I've, I've used I've used both of these and they're both awesome. But no one does it for baking. You know, you've got the mixes on the shelves and all you've got to go and buy all the ingredients and 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 bake. And I think I think I would probably bake something and was you know, grizzling because I've got all this. I only needed like a teaspoon or something and now I've got 500 grams of it in my cupboard. I'm probably never going to use it again. So we said, well, we should try this for baking kits. We could do that. Yeah, why not? Let's try that. And that's effectively where the idea for baked in came from. So we, 100 quid each, chucked 100 quid each and went to Tesco's, bought a load of ingredients, bought some bags and a heat sealer off eBay, made up like a load of kits and just gave them to friends and family and said, try these, see what you think. And then made a Google survey and got all their feedback on it. And I found out at that point is when you ask people you know for feedback, you rarely, on something like that, on a business idea, you rarely get really good, accurate feedback. You've got kind of two camps of people. You've got cheerleaders, people who will tell you, this is amazing. They're super supportive. And I'm not saying that any of these people aren't friends. They're, everyone means well. And everyone you know, genuinely means well. But you've got these people who are cheerleaders and will say, whatever you do, that's amazing. This is incredible. Support you and make you feel really good. And then you've got people who are really negative and skeptical and say, this is a terrible idea. It won't work. And they want they don't want to see you fail they're your friends but i think there's definitely two camps of people so we got this quite polarizing feedback from lots of different people but in general it was really positive and people said you should give this a go so so we made up weighed some more out and printed some labels on our little inkjet printer we went to a school fair we, we went to a, a school fair 
school fake for 20 quid. We went to the Newbury Food Festival in the high street, and that was about 50 quid. And then I think we went to a little Arsene market and we tested the concept, bought a gazebo, again, still within our like 200 quid startup costs. Cheap gazebo that further down the line blew away a market, you know, really cheap gazebo. And we sold them and we had sort of medium amount of success at, at the first one. And then we had some good success at the other two. And we said, this, this, this is fun. This is really good. So a friend Elena joined us. There was three of us at this point. And we just then went from uh, working at IBM in the daytime, go home, wear up ingredients in the evening, sell them at weekends and repeat that over and over. And we got some breaks with some little farm shops, just happened to meet them and they stocked them. They were little brown bags at this point. They look fine. They look really, you know, artisan um, at what you'd expect someone to make on the kitchen table. But we gradually started getting bigger farm shops, bigger sort of small stockists. And we then got a little startup loan from the government. It was like five grand, got some labels, proper labels printed. And this kind of just snowballed, uh, went to a trade show, you know, we spent a couple of grand going to the BBC Good Food Show. We went to our first trade show and we got no experience in the food industry at this point. But And then we just hit this point after two years of it where we had Lakeland who'd found our products and were interested. We just we, we had a little unit from the council that we rented, but we just couldn't do it. It was breaking us. You know, there's only so much of working in a, a stressful corporate job and then bagging ingredients every night and selling them at weekends. You could do. So that was the kind of point where... I decided that I was going to get some investors and quit my day job and give it a give it a shot full time. And the rest, they say, is history. So fascinating. Take me back, uh, if I if I may, perhaps even to your childhood. That kind of entre- that entrepreneurial instinct to which you refer. That finding, you know, thinking of business ideas and not just thinking of ideas, but actually making them happen and seeing them fail. Where did that stem from? Was there was there a business background? Not really, you... no, I don't think so. I think um, my dad um, has been in construction in in, in um, excavator digger sales and just retired actually as a sales director. And he sort of started a couple of his business in plant hire along the way. But I don't think it's something that it's, it's not something that's in my blood. Um, I'm, I definitely didn't, you know, have start up a lemonade stand and sell stuff to the kids in the playground. None of the, um, you know, the textbook kind of cliche stories. Um, I don't think there was really anything particularly entrepreneurial i used to like going to car boot sales with my mum to sell all our old lego and star wars figures which we definitely shouldn't have sold now as it happens but other than that no i don't think there was anything really until uh, probably until i did my degree and started doing you know i think we did a, a small business planning module in the final year and uh, and my project was i comboed it because i like to save effort if i can and my computing project was to build a a golf course, a, 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 not a tea time booking system, so you could book into competitions at a golf course. Yeah, and this is this is when the dawn of the internet, like not the dawn of the internet, but the, when the internet started becoming mainstream in like 2000, and made this system. And then I decided I'd combo with my business with my um, business studies kind of dissertation and um, and do a project around as if I was going to make a business plan to sell this product into golf clubs, and it got like batted back the golf clubs weren't ready for it as it happens they've all got them now but so again it was ahead of its time it was a bit like the drones it was ahead of its time and I think that's probably why I got into it doing the small business planning watch and actually going through the process of creating a small business and the plan for it and then I went I took the easy option and had this nice corporate job and went to IBM and started earning good money and and I think if I had my time again I'd probably while I had no commitments and no 
a fortunate just before tuition fees or hadn't racked up masses of student debt literally the year before they came in. So I was really lucky. That would have been a great time to start a business. You know, I had toyed with the idea of starting a web design business. People weren't making web pages much at that point. I could make fairly straightforward pages, made a couple for friends and family, one of who's actually a shareholder and baked in now, but had the ideas. But then just the allure of the steady, decent salary and the good job prospects was, was too much at that point. So I think it just got shelved until I then realized actually there was you know, desire inside to do something more than the corporate job. How did those ideas how did you make them work? I guess is the, the question I'm searching for in so much as you hear of people who, you know, they keep lists of creative ideas and mm. they write, you know, write all these ideas down and they come to them in the middle of the night, scribble on a pad at the side of the bed and think I'll get to that one day. Arguably many never do. I wonder how many great ideas are, are sat on, the, on, on post-it notes somewhere, but did you, did you have a process that you followed or did you have a, just if you go through eureka moments and think, right, let's give this a go. Yeah, no, that's it. I, 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 if I sat down, I could, put, and me and you sat down over a beer, we could make a hundred good business ideas, yeah, in a couple of hours easily. And anyone can. You can come and the difference between a, a business idea and actually being successful is doing something about it. And it's really difficult to do something about it. You have to have quite a bit of motivation. I'm not a massively self motivated person, and I generally, if I've got someone else with me that's quite motivated as well, that's when I'm at my best. That's when I get stuff done and I have all these business ideas and I think the reason that the other ones were quite good ideas the, the you know the skiing and golf things market might have been a little bit niche but actually you know having people who are as motivated as me to get it done and, and that happened when we did Bates in Anna was as motivated as me and I think the two of us having someone else that makes a big difference people say find a co-founder and um, I think that makes a really big difference getting an idea off the ground I mean Anna and Lane actually stayed at IBM and didn't sort of come on the journey when we took investment they're still shareholders but and that's when my brother Patrick joined and I actually floundered for a little bit for a year or so on my own uh, before he joined left the army joined me as the other director and then we kind of then kicked on and I always always work better with somebody else to to kind of bounce off someone with complementary skills to me interesting so at what point with baked in what point had you discovered that kind of love of baking you know was was there a was it something you always did you mucked about as a kid baking cakes on a sunday afternoon or did you know did you, where, where did you first think actually you know what I, this is something i could get really interested in i'm really passionate or, or ultimately became really passionate about it. so i'm passionate about food and not necessarily baking I enjoy baking but i would say cooking was something that, that mum and she's she's clever she's a primary school teacher so dad was in sales directing construction mum was a was a was a primary school teacher and both really good cooks and you know, quite often dad would come in the kitchen and create a massive mess and create a delicious meal. Mum would cook most of the meals. And then once once Patrick, my brother Patrick and I got, got old enough, mum realized that she could um she could get us enthusiastic about cooking and she could get a Sunday off every couple of weeks and we'd all take it in turns to cook a meal on a Sunday. And, you know, that was something to look forward to as it's your turn to cook this Sunday. So we'd cook the Sunday meal, mum would get a get a Sunday off. And I think that's where Patrick and I both got like a real passion for cooking i mean I, I like eating as much as i like cooking we all like food right and that's i think something at ibm when sat down with with people we'd never met before say what do you do i work at ibm what do you do i would develop this software what does it do it works behind the cash points and then the conversation's more or less over because i was there 15 years and barely understand you know really what what, what happened under the covers i this is going to go out in the public domain and look a bit silly, but um, that's. I think it's fair. I think you know, 
it wasn't my strength. It was the, the technical side was never my strength. Um, but we all eat. Everyone eats. And almost everyone likes eating. And so food is something that we all have in common. There's not many things that every single person has in common. And eating food is one of them. And, and most people can get really passionate about food. We like going out for a meal to a restaurant or lots of us like cooking or like having food cooked for us. So it's something that's really easy to resonate with. It's something really easy to get excited about. And it's something really easy to get other people excited about. And, you know, we can talk more later about the actual baking side, but I think fundamentally it's, it's food is, is what really motivates me in cooking. And it's my hobby. Um, my wife doesn't, doesn't cook at all. So I do all of the cooking and that's fine because I really like cooking during you know the pandemic uh, cooking on a saturday and having feast day as we call it and cooking like some some massive meal is you know some some sort of level of normality something to look forward to and the golf courses are all shut so we can't go and play golf but i think food is it's it's just really special and important to everyone i I think the thing that's always struck me is that the the simple principle of if we determine it as sort of breaking bread but getting a group of people together around food in particular you know, it, it, arguably, it's what unites us. If you think at some mm-hmm. of the most pivotal moments in in history, you know, decisions have been made, determined, sat around a table over a meal or whatever it might have been. So it does absolutely. I, I would understand that. And if you look at the thing that strikes me as well is if we look at has cooking always been cool? It strikes me that cooking has become cool if you, over, cool. The, over the Definitely last twenty years cool. in the mainstream mm-hmm. from a from a TV perspective, from a media perspective. You look at the kind of you know, I, I go back to being a kid and thinking I can't think of many cookery shows that were on TV. But you look now, and there's not there's virtually not a channel you, you know not not a channel that doesn't have some kind of you know flagship show that's that's focused around cooking in some way, shape, or form. So, mm-hmm. but if you go back to that your IBM experience, that corporate experience that you enjoyed at IBM, what do you think that equipped you with when it came to running your own business or even thinking about running your, your own business? What had that corporate experience given you, do you think? It's it's been, it's been, I think, one of the big reasons in our success. I think it's completely different. So you know, managing a, a sort of senior level in a, in a corporation versus managing a small business are their skills from both that are really useful to each other, but they are poles apart. And the things that, you know, keep me awake, such as running out of cash. And we have nearly run out of cash a couple of times. And, you know, I've had some, I've had my share of mental health problems around things like that. And, um, and they're different. You don't worry about run. You might worry about being made redundant or something out of your control, at a big corporation, but you don't worry about the company running out of cash and not, and wondering how you're going to pay your team next month. That's just not something you worry about. The things that are really transferable, that really helped me is being able to manage a team of people and just, you know, second nature. I've been used to managing a team of people for 10 years prior to Baked In. So hiring people and managing them hasn't really been a, a second thought. And I know lots of startups that worry about how to manage people. If you went, if I'd gone straight for university, I'd have had no experience managing a team um and i've been through all ibm's management training and it would have cost tens of thousands of pounds and would never have got that sort of fundamental basis to management had i just gone straight into a startup and i'm sure i'd have figured it out but uh, it would have taken longer and so i definitely went in with a, like a really good solid foundation on um, leadership i think leadership's the important thing running a small business almost nothing you know cash flow profit and loss 
supplier management, all these little things that that you do as a small business, you do everything to start with. You just, you know, someone else has a whole procurement department. You know, there's like four levels of procurement department to buying something. So you just, you just fill in a form and stuff happens. So there's definite synergies and there's definitely overlap. And, you know, we've built the foundations of baked in early and now in a position where we can and are scaling significantly and i think having a corporate background definitely helped patrick went to sandhurst and went to you know it was a captain in the in the army and into afghanistan and um and comes in with you know a different set of like really solid leadership skills so i think having these big big organizational leadership skills really helps in a small business so you go back to that car journey and that commute that you referred to and anna i think you mentioned the lady's Mm -hmm. name was there a point on that journey where you thought hang on a minute you know, you're, you're, you're shooting ideas around, but you've, you've come onto the, you're talking about what that we now know is baked in. Mm-hmm. Was there a point in which you think, actually, do you know what? That really could work. Or, or did it take that it farmer's a, markets and, mm-hmm. and all those things that you refer to to kind of validate, actually, it did, yeah. people do want this? It did, because, you know, like I say, we could come up, we come up with 100 ideas in an hour. No problem. Decent business ideas. Me and Patrick do it all the time. We drive somewhere in a, in a van, company van, and we go to see a customer or something. And uh, the, the longest one, we drove to Newcastle to do a sampling, a big customer, and drove back. And we spent hours in the van. And um, I've got domain names that we registered off that um, discussion of like ridiculous business ideas that we just shelved because you can't do all these things. They've, it, to do anything properly takes so much time and effort. But we have got hundreds of completely unrelated to baked in business ideas and also hundreds of amazing things that we could do with baked in that we just know are going to take so much time and just ideas are cheap i think ideas are really easy to come up with but getting something done with them that's where people that can get something done are like gold dust to me i was struck earlier you mentioned that you might not consider yourself to be necessarily very self-motivated i think was the phrase that you would have used but I find I'm finding I'm struggling with that. I'm finding that a little hard to believe, if only because I think the motivation, I know the motivation it takes just simply to start something, to mm-hmm. make it happen. When you combine that with what I know will have been a very demanding day job at IBM, mm-hmm. to be then going to evenings, weekends to make a concept fly, to really believe in it, that strikes me as someone with a high level of self-motivation. What is it that motivates you? Where does that where does that drive come from? thing is i think we're maybe talking slightly cross purposes because i think it's the i think it's momentum right once i get momentum then that's when i'm like an unstoppable force but going from from naught to 60 uh, actually all my friends would will take the mickey on the football pitch saying that my you know once i'm up to speed i'm quite fast but my acceleration is not in milk float months has been coined as a term on the football pitch before but um I think it's the it's it's having somebody to it's not necessarily the motivation of it, but it's having someone to get that kind of get something spooling up, and then once it's going, I think that's the that's the key. It's the it's the spark and getting the the fire ignited is the the bit where I would say you know my my strength is if I sat there and just sat at my desk at home on my own and spent you know two weeks coming up with something. If I had someone sat next to me, I'd do it in a quarter of the time. Because it's just, I find another person just really motivates me. And, and I've got tons of gaps, as we all do, in our skill sets and things that we're not particularly good at. I'm really not a very good project manager. Yeah, if I've got a good project manager, I've got someone really organized next to me, then that's that's perfect. We get so much more done. 
And if you're a jack of all trades, like a genuine jack, jack of all trades, probably can get those those business ideas up and going quicker. My strengths are in you know, leadership and, and creativity and bringing other people with me and all the ideas, but the actual dotting the I's and crossing the T's can do it. And, you know, you wouldn't have got to a senior job in IBM if I couldn't do some level of project management, but it's definitely not my strength. Was there a moment going back to those baked in early days of farmers markets and, and school fairs and all those sorts of things? Was there a moment where you thought, I did, you know what, going to throw in the towel? Did you come close? Was oh, there a the sort time. of pivotal moment? All where- the time. Yeah, totally. It's, um, it's a, again, a massive cliche, the roller coaster you go on as a, as a startup and a business. And it's just, there's never, it's never, it's never flat. You're never just like, yeah, this is good. It's always elation or despair and somewhere in between. You're always on a slope down to despair or up to elation to some extent. Um, so yeah, regularly, you know, regularly at midnight, we'd be trying to pack an order thinking, what are we doing? This is horrendous. I don't want to, I don't want to be doing this. And then going to work the next day tired. And then, you know, it did feel like towards the end, it was just, it was too much of a slog. And we just happened to be in the right place where we had real opportunities. And, you know, we managed to to create a decent revenue stream this way that I thought, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not that I don't enjoy what I'm doing. I don't enjoy not doing anything else and just being constantly going hammer and tongs at making this. That's where became a reasonably easy decision. I'd, IBM let me cut my hours down to um, where I compress them. So I was doing four or five days in four. So I had a Friday off to work on Baked In. And that's something we've carried on into Baked In. We've got this four-day week. It's kind of part of our signature. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the things that makes us what we are as a company, that we work Monday to Thursday. Um, but we work long days. We work, we work our full hours in Monday to Thursday. And I had that Friday that I could sit down at my desk at home and just crack on with some of this baked in stuff. And, you know, I knew I loved it. I knew I genuinely thought we had this idea for the subscription box that we couldn't do, that we wanted to do. And we needed investment. We were just coming up to two years old. So we could raise SEIS capital. We could break for the tax, uh, you know, for the investors, good tax break. Um, so I had this really small window of like three months three months to do it and I we were going to crowdfund we'd made a video a really bad video and again with hindsight to actually crowdfund properly you need to make a really good video and we'd made a really homemade video in the kitchen and but with a fairly good business plan behind it and that was all locked and loaded ready to go and I sent that around my friends and family and that's what you do you get some momentum and I, I, even though we'd never actually done crowdfunding I now know a lot more about crowdfunding than I did at the time and family friend nick who owns a clay pigeon shooting school and he was the person who i made a website for I used to play golf with him back in the day and made him a website my first website that i made and got some money for it was like 200 quid but i was made up with it at the time and he said oh i'd like to invest in this it's really interesting i've also got some friends who who i know that invest we invest in businesses together don't press the button yet let me send the business plan around see what we can do and um, two days later, I've been introduced to a guy called Ian, David, who then turned into our chairman and finance director for a few years, non-execs, and got an introduction to Michelle Rue, uh, Michelle Rue OB, who unfortunately passed away last year, but he was one of the founding shareholders in Baked In. I got a, vividly remember it, got a meeting, Nick got me a meeting at the Waterside Inn with him just to show him the idea. And Michelle was a pastry chef when he first started his career. You know, and then he, he ran a, a three Michelin star restaurant for th- 35, 40 years. It's the longest that a restaurant's ever held in the UK, three Michelin stars. And it's, it's an incredible restaurant. It's unbelievable. Eaten there once. 
and I had this meeting with Michelle on his on his deck by the River Thames outside the restaurant. I was so nervous and you know, I thought I knew I was going to get the investment close at this point, but I had this opportunity to get probably the best chef in the country, probably, probably one of the best chefs in the world, to have some shares in Baked In. And he loved it. And he was a lovely guy. So charismatic. Um, and I definitely, but you know, some of our success, he's not the most commercial chef. He's not, you know, lots of people still don't know who Michel Roux is, but in the culinary world, he's you know, the godfather, him and his brother Albert, are the godfathers of of kind of modern restaurant cooking. And um, he saw the vision in this subscription, this different baking kit, completely unique through the post every month. And it's a big goal because you've got to come up with brand new product every month. And we got him on board and that was it. That was where we got the, the capital to build our first factory. Did you close him at that meeting? Was it at that point driving away yeah. from that meeting? You think that's... Uh, I knew, um, I knew. yeah, I knew he was in at that meeting. You know, you can tell, I mean, I mean nothing was signed, but no. he said, yeah, I love this. I want in. Do you remember yeah. how you felt when you drove away? Yeah, I drove, we were at the uh, the, uh, the farm shop and deli show at, uh, at the NEC, taking a couple of days off work. So Anna and Elena were manning the stand at the show, you know, selling into... Um, to shops and it's where we got center parks was one of our first kind of big stockists from that show and i jumped in the car and i drove down uh, the m4 and had a meeting with him and then i drove back to the show yeah and i remember that drive back up the m4 to um back up to the nec i was elated that i'd had this meeting you know you're all a bit starstruck when we see a celebrity and we're coming away thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna quit my job and i'm gonna have one of the world's best chefs as a shareholder, putting his name and his signature on this box every single month, coming up with the recipes with us. Yeah, it was, a, it was pretty surreal, I have to say. And I, at that point, I, I, I remember saying, I remember I said to the guys, I said, we've done it. That's it. Baked in's going to be a success. I, how little I knew was that there was, we hadn't done it and there was some ridiculous hard work ahead of us. But yeah, at that point, that was the real, that was the first real elation, I would say, in baked in was getting Michelle on board and having this group of really supportive shareholders because you know lots of people say don't give investment away and don't don't sell anything but we wanted to build a factory and building a factory is capital intensive we one of our one of our and we particularly in the last 12 months have seen the benefits of this but our strategy was to build in-house manufacturing and not to just be a brand and a couple of people sat in a um in a shared office somewhere and have someone else making our product for us we wanted to make it ourselves, and because we had all these different subscription boxes, and we we started with hundred people, started with hundred customers, and there's no co-packer that would given us would give us a decent price on a hundred boxes, complicated boxes, seven bags inside them, totally different product every month. And so we had to build this in-house manufacturing. That was expensive, way more expensive than I thought, way more than 150 grand that I raised in the first round. So you know, we hired interns and junior people, and actually. My hired um, attempt, Anna, who was about 20, and her and her husband, Marcin, um, come over from Poland and they were living in England and they joined as attempts, just filling bags of flour. And Anna now is my factory manager, runs our entire factory site. And um, yeah, so I started with you know quite junior employees or for, I was fortunate to get some less junior employees that could just see the vision and were happy to work for a junior salary. And um, hopefully they're seeing the benefit now with the, their share options are worth are worth a lot of money. So, yeah. How did you feel resigning from IBM? Because I think that the, for many people perhaps listening to this who might be in a corporate job now mm -hmm. with a number of an idea or maybe even more, but that 
perceived security, if you like, mm-hmm. of a of a corporate job. And to yeah. your point, I think particularly in the current climate, you know, not to suggest that people aren't fearful of things like redundancy, they're big issues. But nonetheless, the perceived security of a, of a monthly salary and all that mm-hmm. that would entail. How did you feel? You've got 15 years in the bank, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a lot of you know, tenure you've got, you know, you've got recognition, you've got mm-hmm. all of the good things that come with having done it. You know, get a pen. You get a pen. <laughs> um, how did you feel that morning driving in thinking, right, today's the day I'm going to... I'm going to so, hand in my notice. I, you know, my, when I when I rattled the story off in in a nutshell and I said I quit my job, it's um, it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. It was a little bit, it was a little bit less, it was a little bit less risky than that. So, and I don't, you know, I'll go into it now because we've got more time. But um, yeah, IBM was a great employer. IBM, I had a really good boss. He's called Rob. He was the he was the vice president of the software lab. So he was a senior guy in software in the UK, and I was his. Um, as it got towards the end, I was his his right hand man, his assistant, effectively, and you know it was a great opportunity. It was a, it was a it was a much better opportunity than was wasted on somebody who'd sort of mentally checked out of the company. You know, this is executive grooming kind of job and visibility and all the time. It wasn't a fun job, but it was you know a really good opportunity. But it wasn't right for me. It's a job I'd been angling for for the last five years, and I finally got it. And ironically, I got that job when I was mentally checked out. I think, and I probably didn't do anywhere near as good a job for Rob as I should have done and could have done. Um, but when your mind, so when your heart's on something else, it's difficult to it's difficult to commit yourself to both. So I think I did a good job, but nowhere near as good a job as I could have. Anyway, Rob, Rob was totally supportive of me working on baked in, in my spare time, and and again, IBM is good at letting people take leave of absences. So I said, I really want to give baked in a shot. I feel like I need to I feel like I need to do this. I'm I was 35. Um, didn't have any had a, had a mortgage and but no children or anything. No like real financial dependencies. And I had this, you know, I had back surgery a couple of years before. And actually, no, it wasn't. I'd had back problems a couple of years before. I had just had the back surgery, and um, I used to play golf all the time, and it was my thing. I just loved playing golf, and I was a member of the course. It was a mile from work, so I could nip out at lunchtime and I could practice on the range, and I could play on a Friday afternoon, knock off early, and go and play golf. And play at the weekends, you know, I was playing like three or four times a week, got my handicap right down, loved it. And that was probably why I was still content with a job that I didn't love was because I could go and play golf in the evenings. And it was, you know, it was a nice life. And then my back went when I ended up quitting golf and got quite depressed, honestly. And I had to eventually had surgery for it and it's fine now it's gone but um got addicted to codeine in the process of the painkillers because it's just so much pain and got really quite miserable that something that was you know a big part of my life just got taken away from me and that was around this time of making the decision to do baked in and baked in was one of the things that kept me going because i couldn't sit down because it hurt and lying down hurt standing up was fine so in the evenings i'd be standing up weighing ingredients out and that was fine so to some extent you know those those first couple of really tough years of baked in helped me get through but it was still really hard. So I said to Rob, you know, I feel I need to give this a go. I really need to give this a go. Um, I don't think he knew, he didn't know I was really, you know, suffering for depression at that point, but he said, go for it. So I took a leave of absence, long story, but no, I, think um, I could take a year to go and do it. And I had a guaranteed job at the same level, not necessarily the same job. Someone else took that, but I could come back at the same level in a year's time if everything went to shit. I had that safety net and that's quite unique. I think that's that's something that IBM just does really well. All sorts of bad press, but particularly the labs where I worked, you know, they just looked after their people and they did they weren't the best payers and they didn't have the best benefits, but they gave me that opportunity to to try it with some level of safety net. And that was good. 
but it, and I got my I got my investment and built a team and things were going well. But you know, trying to get it off the ground, we probably didn't quite. I told the investors, you know, we were going to be turning up a million pounds after year one, and we weren't. We were turning out like two hundred k, and um, we ran out of money around about the time that my leave of absence was coming up. And there's the first time of you know, one hundred and fifty thousand pounds in the bank feels like a ridiculous high amount of money and i thought oh, i've made it happy days i've got michelle Roux on board got money in the bank i've got some team and and just didn't really think through the implications of customers that weren't going to pay me for two months and having to buy raw materials in three months before and the cash flow challenges of that gap just hadn't really i knew about it i knew the theory of it i'd done a cash flow forecast i'd done all the stuff i was supposed to do but I'd never actually done it and so at this as this year came up we'd run out of money and we had like it just crept up on me. Then we had like one month's worth of money left. I could only pay people for one more month. And then I struggled again. You know, I'd get and then I got a big bout of anxiety. And really, that's when Patrick joined the business. That's when Patrick had left the army. Um, and he was looking for something to do. And I had a sales manager job. And, and I'd been doing it on my own for that year. And that's when Patrick came in and joined the business. But had this massive, the actual decision to actually resign was harder than the decision to leave IBM and go and start baked in because then I had to, had to hand, had a month, had to hand my notice or had to go back to IBM and I had no money baked in. We'd run out of money. What made you take the leap? What made you take the baked in leap? <laughs> so I think a couple of things. I think the fact that it's quite lonely going and being the sole director. That's, that's the way I said I, I floundered. I don't think I floundered. We did a good job, but going and being the sole director, not having anyone that you can just like talk to about these things because it was all bottled up at this point. I couldn't go and talk to my operations manager or someone say, we're going to run out of money next month because then they're all going to panic. And you just got to, you've got to go to work and try and put a brave face on and you can't let other people. And it's good to talk about mental health. Absolutely. But when you've got people who are depending and then you don't want to send them all into panic that they may be out of a job the next month, you've got a month to figure it out, a month to sort it out. So anyway, Patrick started talking about joining. That gave me the motivation, thinking, okay, I could have someone else running the business. That'd be awesome. Um, and then I was fortunate that our investors decided, that some of them wanted, decided they wanted to invest again. So we raised another round of EIS investment, which then gave us enough to to push on. And that was really important. Running out, Nearly running out of money is such an important thing, I think, because it's kind of forged a lot of the decisions we've made since. It's having that actual fear that anxiety and i've learned since then you know i i've learned how to i think all of us have got anxiety in us we all do to some extent and some people it hits really hard some people it's suppressed some people never sees the light of day some uh, and i think knowing how to feel it coming and knowing how to manage it is really important and that's something that i've been able to do for the last you know four years is a bit like when my back, I still have the occasional back problems, but I know when it's about to go and I know then not to stand up quickly or not to get out of the car quickly because if I do, then it's going to jar and then I'm going to be in you know, pain for another two weeks. And I think you can kind of sense it coming. So, yeah, so I, was, I, I got this, I, I had some more investment secured and then I was like, right, okay, Patrick's joining. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll hand in my notice. And then I actually resigned from IBM. So it was harder. It was harder doing that than it was actually making the decision to to go with the safety net of a leave of absence to fall back on. Do you, do you attribute that period to the combination of your brother joining, the, the investment, the, 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 the secondary raise, mm -hmm. 
do you attribute that moment as a sort of pivotal point at which you thought, you know what, yeah. I, and sure, blood, sweat mm -hmm. and tears will have gone on since then, an awful lot of hard work. But was that the point at which you thought, you know what, that's pivotal to yep. baked in? That's a mm -hmm. foundation on which baked in has then Definitely. continued to thrive. Yes, because, um, because we've grown quite sustainably. You know, we're here seven years later and we're going to turn over, we're going to turn over well over four million pounds this year. And um, there's 35 of us, we've got 35,000 square foot of factory. So it's, it's worked. The strategy has worked. And I think it's pivotal because it's helped us to, to keep making decisions on marketing and things, but we've never, we've, we've never bet the farm on anything. You know, we've never, we've always been mindful. That feeling of nearly running out of money has always been like present. And I've experienced it firsthand. They will say you learn by your mistakes you don't really learn until you make some of those mistakes and someone can tell you what to do until you actually experience it. Um, so, you know, we've been pretty financially shrewd, but we've still managed to spend the money on the things we've needed to, to get to this point. So it's definitely forged some of our philosophies. If anything, it's possibly made us a little bit too cautious with some things, uh, but we're fortunate now we've got some institutional investors behind us as well. And we've kind of really managed to you know, open up the amount we spend on customer acquisition. And we just acquired people very organically to our subscription boxes. Whereas now, you know, we've we've got the confidence to go on and actually spend money in on pay-per-click and flyers. And we're going to do a TV campaign in the next couple of months. And so it's given us that kind of really solid foundation, I think, to build a a business that we can grow into a 50, 100 million pound business that but we're not just chucking everything at one big gamble and seeing it flop. So yeah, it's definitely, that was definitely a really important part in our story. What's been really interesting, I think, and a consistent theme throughout our discussion here has been the references that you've made to other people and, and for what a better term, sharing the burden, if you like, not only in terms of the relationship, working relationship with your brother, bouncing ideas around with Anna, finding other people, your relationship with, with Rob, your boss at IBM, but that people who've been pivotal to sharing the, the, the load and, and, and therefore you've been able to scale as a consequence. And what strikes me is that consistent through conversations I've had with entrepreneurs who've been, who've successfully scaled, I think most people I've met have understood that intellectually in order that they might scale their business, they have to let other people get involved. Mm -hmm. But emotionally letting that happen is another story entirely because oftentimes they're driven by this sense of control and, and, and ownership and responsibility and accountability and driving it and it's theirs and there's a lot of identity wrapped up in it. You seem to have opened up, baked in to have the potential to become a bigger pie very much earlier mm -hmm. than maybe some might. Which is interesting. I think it, it strikes me that, that that opportunity to scale. How how have you found that transition from kind of respectfully three people in a mm -hmm. in a small unit to inviting other investors? Everybody's got a, not only a stake, but mm -hmm. therefore arguably a say, an opinion, a voice. How have you found that transition? You know, even if you look back to that experience you alluded to from the get go at IBM with the small acquired company in yeah. in Maidenhead and the the struggle of that entrepreneur to transition to corporate life. That's a big, yeah. So that's a step change, mm -hmm. significantly different to what we're describing here. But have you found that transition to getting others involved, from which you can then subsequently scale? You can't do it all on your own. You have to. You have to get other people to. I'm still guilty of having these things that that I end up thinking, oh, I could do that, and then don't do it because I haven't got time. And actually, that's that's part of what we're doing at the moment is investing more heavily in growing the team and getting people in that we can actually get some of these projects move forward on quicker. Yeah, it's it's impossible to do. You you can do you can do this kind of business with a small team, but you have to contract out 
lots of things. And we took the approach of keeping everything in-house. So we've got an in-house creative team, design team. We've got a design studio. Um, we've got you know, finance, marketing, um, all the manufacturing, recipe development, warehousing. Everything is in-house apart from HR. Everything is is in-house other than things that can make me go to prison. So I give that to people externally. We had an external accountant. We've now got a head of finance that's that's come in, and you have you have to you have to give up control and get good people to do that to be successful. It's not saying you can't be successful as as a couple of people with a co-manufacturer, but you know it really has come into its own by letting us launch all these different products and test things out. Make five hundred. If it doesn't work, doesn't work. We haven't invested lots in it, and it also really helped us during the pandemic because we. From a from a business point of view, we've been really fortunate, really fortunate. Sales solves everything. You know, sales solves those problems. And back when we ran out of money, fortunately, we did have a few big customers come on board. I think we got Tesco. Um, we got our first Tesco listing around the first time that I was making that decision to to like completely quit and and and, and properly resign from IBM. And um, yeah, sales sales solves everything. So we've been fortunate to get lots and lots of new customers since the beginning of the pandemic. Home baking's been massively popular, and we deliver boxes that fit through letter boxes. So there's no contact. It's it's perfect from that point of view. It's obviously a massive drive towards direct to consumer, and we did the foundations for that. You know, we had a few thousand subscribers already at that point. So it's not fluke. It's not luck. We're fortunate. We're fortunate, but it's not luck, if that makes sense. And because we had our own factory. It was really difficult. We suddenly had to halve the number of people we have in our factory. Normally, when we get really busy, we get loads of people in and we pack boxes and we all pile in and do it. But we couldn't do that because everyone's got to be two meters apart. Um, and, you know, we've we've been a really good citizen since the beginning of, of this. And we've looked after everyone. The, most of the office team are working from home. The factory guys have to come in because we're a food factory um, and key workers. But we had to move all the counters apart. We had to reduce the number of people and, and demand went up through the roof like four times overnight and we had to halve our capacity so so that was challenging you know we've got a twilight shift now that we've got a shift that comes in from six to midnight and um we work a four-day week um so that was something i i did at ibm was i cut down to four-day weeks started baked in and loved working a four-day week so well let's do that why not this is our business we can do what we want no one can tell us what to do so we're going to work monday to thursday 30 hours, Monday to Thursday, and then everyone has a Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, and that's amazing, and it works really well for everyone. It gives us another day in the factory if we need to do overtime, and then and what it's meant is we can now do a Tuesday to Friday shift, so actually we can keep the factory going much longer. So we had a lot of creative things we had to do to keep it going. and But because we had the factory ourselves, it meant we could keep manufacturing. The co-packers that we talked to in the industry who'd normally work on you know one to two weeks lead time, we're going out to eight, nine weeks, not even taking on new clients. So if we had been dependent on someone else, we probably would have furloughed everyone last March and we would have had to furlough everyone because we wouldn't have been able to make any product. And we haven't furloughed anyone. We've actually hired 10 people since the beginning of the pandemic and another kind of 20 agency staff in the factory. So, and moved into a new warehouse, which meant then we could turn our entire warehouse and office into the factory. So... So yeah, having that level of control, having things within our destiny, is part of our it's part of our brand. It's part of why we are kind of what we are. But it's also it's expensive to start, and it's what most of that capital went on was building factories and adding machineries. But it's it's what works well for us. So looking back over the last eight years now of of, of baked in, is there anything that you would have done differently with the benefit of hindsight? 
yeah, I mean, with the with the benefit of hindsight, loads of stuff. Um, I'd have raised more money to start with. I'd have learned that that goes very quickly. I'd have started investing in pay-per-click marketing quicker on Facebook. Tried it myself, you know, got some money, had a go, couldn't make it work, stopped. Didn't realize that was just probably arrogant. I thought I was smart enough to just be able to, to figure it out myself. And it's actually quite a fine art in making Facebook ads work. It's not a case of just making an advert, pressing click and hoping you get customers for the cost you need to. Definitely should have started that a long time ago. We grew the baking club really organically. And and there's some some benefits to that. You know, we grew really slowly and sustainably. But it started out with 120 people, I think, of which I'm pretty sure about 90 of them were my friends and family. Um, a couple of them are still with us this day. So that was it was October 2015. We launched the first recipe, and I've still got still got friends who get that box every single month. And yeah, and I mean Andy, one of my Andy and Kathy, Andy was one of the guys that started one of the previous businesses with me, and and they still get it, and bake it with their little ones every month. So yeah, there's good. There's benefits of growing it slow and steady. But I think if I'd known that I could get some more experience marketeers involved and start growing that quicker that we'd have just got we we got to where we are quicker um but you know we know that now i think having somebody else working with me so when patrick came in patrick took sales took the retail sales so he managed all our our customers all the stuff we sell in the shops that was really important as well so having somebody who could just focus on that and you know, i was trying to do the admin and the, the purchase orders and everything myself that that created a lot of extra capacity to grow some of the other sides of the business because we've we, we we took this strategy and again a really a tricky one and if I had my time again would I do it I'm not sure it's working now so probably um, but the the strategy was to launch a range of products that sat on the shelf in the shops and a completely unique product that we don't sell in the shops subscription boxes online and build these two parts of the business in parallel. You know, it's it's more normal for someone to build a presence in retail and then go and launch a subscription or do something in direct consumer or vice versa. You know, um, Gray's built a massive direct to consumer following and then moved into retail very successfully. And you know, there's other brands like Hotel Chocolat build a subscription and a, 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 you know build the two things and have the shops. And we tried to build these, and it's difficult because your resource gets spread very thinly across the ground. And we always looked at it as a the rationale was because we can go to buyers in Tesco, Costco, our biggest customers, and say, we can sell this product on the shelf. And it's not, people aren't then just going to come and buy it from our website because we don't sell it on our website. But we're going to get them to come and join the baking club community in the subscription box. And equally in the subscription box, someone buys that, we can put flyers in that saying, go and buy this pretzel kit from Tesco's, which we launched a couple of months ago. It's been our most popular product we've launched in retail recently. And, um, and we then don't lose the customers from the subscription box because they're completely unique products and we're building this this community and it's always been about more than just the boxes we send through the letterbox it's been about building a community of people and there's and again that's something that 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 decision has turned out to be a really good one we went into the pandemic and and people have discovered baked in and they've discovered this community so it's not just a way of getting convenient ingredients. It is a way of getting convenient ingredients. That's not all it is. They also get access to this group of 9,000 of us now on Facebook in a closed group, which is, you know, we moderate it and it's just the most, you know, friendly, supportive place. And it's a big part of the proposition now. Access to all the recipes, all the previous recipes. As a member, you get access to all those recipes as well. So there's kind of a bit of an ecosystem around 
around it and our tagline is happiness is homemade super cheesy but it's really true and that's why people have flooded to baking and during a pandemic is because we're at home and doing something that's really making people happy so growing that community and that's ultimately one day what's hopefully going to make baked in a really valuable company is that community and you know hopefully we're going to be we're sending out twenty thousand boxes a month and hopefully in a couple of years time we'll be sending out sixty thousand boxes a month and then and then we're then we're a really valuable direct to consumer business as well as having mainstream listings against the big players in the market i mean everyone knows betty crocker but i don't think anyone loves making a betty crocker but they do love baked in and they love the the brand and the people around it and fostering that community and us in the team or being in that community it's been really motivating to us during the pandemic seeing how much these boxes mean to people and so when we've been grafting and we have our big day they all go out on the same day of the month that's quite challenging in itself Twenty thousand boxes all left our warehouse yesterday and my mum and dad and friends and family and we've tried to we normally get some agency staff in to help with the labeling day it takes it takes 10 people an entire day just to put the, the postage labels on the boxes for the subscription boxes now and so we because we don't want lots of people coming in that we didn't know because of the pandemic we've you know tried to keep it to people that were either you know living with other people my mum and dad my mum and dad lived with us during some of the pandemics they were moving house so yeah we've got we've got brothers-in-laws, parents, and all the office staff going down and helping label all these boxes. And it's freezing in the warehouse. It's like, there's no heating in there. It's freezing. It's called the, they're called, jokingly calling it the igloo at the moment. And it's fair. But when we're down there and our fingers are nearly falling off, putting these labels on, like, you know, thinking of, we know that there's people that are like pressing refresh to see when we're going to ship the boxes. And that's really, it's really nice. So yeah. Um, that decision to build those two things together has been expensive and difficult and maybe stunted our growth at the beginning. If we'd put all our eggs in the retail basket, maybe we'd be massive in retail. And if we'd have forgotten about retail and just monarchically focused all of our resource and energy on the baking club, maybe we'd have 30,000 in our subscription today. I don't know. But building the two together has, has now paid off. We're really seeing the rewards for that now. So what does the future look like for Baked In? So, so we're just closing another round of investment with our existing investors. We're doing some Series A, and we we've got another subscription box planned to go into our kind of subscription ecosystem. We've got some really interesting plans for a North American range, and that's something that may or may not come off. And it's obviously everyone tries to conquer America, and most people don't succeed. And people have told us it's a bad idea, and. I think it's a good idea. People told us it was a bad idea. I remember being at a, a trade show at the beginning and someone from one of our competitors who came up and talked to us for ages. We didn't know they were from one of our competitors and a young lady um, from like the brand team or something. And she, oh, you're making everything yourself. And so, well, that never works. And um, I guess it spurred me on to make it work. So I think, yeah, we've got some, some really interesting North American plans. We've got some other products planned online, but really it's to grow really dramatically grow the size of our baking club community because that's what that's what people love that's what we all you know all love in the company i think the the products in in retail we've got loads of cool ones planned but they're kind of for us at the moment supporting act we retail was really important for us because it brought revenue and enabled us to grow the business direct to consumer businesses generally get grown at a big loss and very aggressively grown and sometimes that's hugely successful and sometimes they get wiped out very quickly We've taken a kind of balanced approach. We've made sometimes some years we made a little bit of profit, some years we've made a little loss. 
and we reinvested everything that we made from all our retail growth into growing the, the subscription side. So traditionally our revenue spits been like 80% retail, 20% direct to consumer. And long term we want to get that the other way. We want to we still want to grow the retail side, but we want it to be 80% of our revenue coming from our direct to consumer activity and investing in warehouse space and extra factory space is something that we're doing as part of this investment round to give us that capacity to go on and, and get loads more subscribers to our to our baking. We launched the bread club in in June. So we've now got a bread baking club as well. And then another one planned for this summer. So it's to really grow that community enormously um, through extra investment in our pay-per-click and through TV campaigns as well. That's something really exciting that we just kicked off and hopefully we'll see that on the screens in the next couple of months. But we're really, really pumped about that. So where can people listening, where can they find that community? How can they, those that want to join, where can yeah, they, so, how can they go about doing so? So our, wait, our website is bakedin.co.uk, so B-A-K-E-D-I-N.co.uk. And that's where, that's where you can join the Baking Club. That gives you access to the group community on Facebook, the Baking Club community, um, and all the perks and all the recipes and everything. So you can find out about all the products on there. We sell about 200 products on our website. So we started selling... Um, complimentary products you know baking tins oven gloves those kind of things we don't make we sell those on the website as well um, and we do these gift subscriptions and at christmas this christmas was insane i think we sent out two and a half thousand gift subscriptions in a in a day so people can buy a three six or a 12 month subscription they get a certificate and they give it to someone with the first box and then they can activate the doesn't recur you know it's a non-recurring subscription and they're just really nice gifts so we've um we can sell all those on the website as well in in the shops here we're in all the big tescos so we've got a, we've got a rainbow cake that's amazing it's our it's probably our best selling product has been our best selling product in retail so it's all the different colored layers natural colorings and we sell a few different formats of that so that's super popular and then last year we had to pause it because we had to rationalize what we made during the pandemic because we had to half the number of people in the factory a lot of our customers shut their doors and then the some of our customers went absolutely you know crazy with sales like tesco and, and costco being fantastic for us so we had this this product that we'd launched really innovative called the Cake Factory, a sub-brand called the, the Cake Factory by Baked In. And because we've got these different color cake layers we can do, we've got different colored icings and sprinkles, we came up with a way, a tool on our website where you can customize this cake completely. So there's millions, I think there's hundreds of millions of combinations technically, but you can choose all the different colored layers you want. You can choose the colored icing, you can choose the type of sprinkles you want. You can add candles, you can add the tins to bake it in, and then we pick those in our warehouse individually, box them all up and send them out. And that's something we're going to put some some real investment. It's been really popular. We did a Valentine's one this week and... We did it with red layers and um, and white icing with little love heart sprinkles on top, and it sold out in hours. So the cake factory is going to be a big part of our investment in building that product out. Envision at all when you buy a new car and you customize it and you change the wheels and the color and everything. And we've got this vision to do something similar to that with a cake that you can kind of create before your eyes, and then we send it out with personalization. We do mug cakes as well, so that's been that was that was our bread and butter to start with was our mug cakes, and they, we still sell loads of them, but the baking's overtaken. But you make them in a mug in the microwave, a little bit of butter and milk, and we've got a cake and a card. So one of those in a greetings card, so you send someone a cake and a card. So we've got all these kind of party things, and I know there haven't been lots of parties recently, but I don't know, I'm we we had just started a strategy to go to lots of events just before this happened. 
And obviously that strategy has been shelved at the moment. My personal opinion is that it's going to come back in spades. We all, yeah, everyone jumped on Zoom, didn't we? We all jumped on Zoom in the first lockdown and everyone had Zoom quizzes and Zoom parties. And then we all realized that we don't like it that much. And it's fine from a business point of view, but I think we're all just desperate to get back out there and like be humans again. I think the high street is going to look very different. We have toyed with high street concepts in the past. Uh, and it may be something that the, the high street is going to have to tempt businesses back in and it's not going to be people just going and buying what they were going to buy. It's going to be experiential kind of businesses and shops and baked in is quite well placed to do something in that space. So it could be a it could be a retail concept in the future. But I think just as, as humans, we're just desperate to get back out there and to live like life to some extent how it was and go to events and go and play golf. And I think once we can... I think the floodgate's going to open and we'll be all back at those events in, in spades. So. With all the experiences that you've had, what do you think you've learned about yourself as a consequence? I think, I say, I say the self-motivation thing. I think, you know, I think until you realise, until you step back and look at what you've accomplished and think, how, what points in this did I do my best stuff? And it was when I had good people around me. So I think I've certainly learned that from myself. I've learned that I'm massively happier when I'm doing something that I actually care about or really care about didn't realize before you know obviously dawn towards the end and it is my business so it's different when it's your own thing but genuinely for the last five years i haven't had a oh, sunday evening gotta go to work feeling not once haven't had that once and so i've learned that for me the personal motivation of doing something that i'm really passionate about and interested in is something that's really important to me but more important than the monetary side of it and you know i took a huge pay cut to go and start baked in and and it's now paid dividends but actually just being happy doing something that you, you spend more of your life with people you work with when, than your family usually maybe different now people start working from home a lot more but in general going to work and the people you work with and what you're doing at work is actually such a massive part of your life that to me it's hammered home how important that is to me being happy is doing something that I genuinely care about. So if perhaps looking back, what, what advice might you give to 21 year old Joe Munns? Advice is a really difficult one because I've always got this approach that you can, you can listen. Everyone's got different advice and you just got to be careful what you listen to because I give you, if I give you this advice, is it right or is it wrong? I think it's, it just depends that like everyone's different. And if I was, you know, I could step back and say, I would advise someone leaving university to just go and start their own business, but it's not necessarily the right advice because actually that 15 years might have, you know, forged me into to where I am now and how I managed to start Baked In. So going and starting that web development company or something straight out of university could have been hugely good or it could have been a disaster. So I don't know, my advice is always to people is to, listen to people's advice but don't necessarily always take it because it's not always right um so i think it's just for me it's do something you like care about just do something that makes you happy do something that you're interested in and that doesn't have to be your hobby right for me it was going to be golf or cooking it doesn't have to be your hobby it just has to be something that you can go and get excited about the best sales people are the people that are genuinely excited about what they're selling and sales has been a huge part of of what what we've done at Baked In and I didn't really have any sales experience. Everyone always said you should go into sales and I didn't fancy going into IT sales. Um, there would have been a lot of money in it, but I just couldn't get my head around going and selling 
enterprise IT just couldn't, couldn't get excited about it. So sales for me has turned into something I'm really good at and enjoy, but because it's something I really care about and I really enjoy. So find something that you genuinely care about and just go and get behind it and give everything because you'll be happier in the long run. What about away from work? I mean, it strikes me that your own business is a 24-7 commitment, even Mm -hmm. if it's just mentally. Um, Having that downtime, therefore, becomes crucial, if Mm -hmm. difficult to achieve at times. But you mentioned, you know, doing the big cook-up at at home on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. What do you do to unwind, to relax? Do you get any downtime? And if so, what does it look like? It's, you know, it's it's a badge of honour these days, isn't it, for entrepreneurs to to work 24-7 and the harder you work and it looks good. And, um, yeah, I work really hard. And Fridays I usually work really technically work a four-day week but friday is a nice day for me to spend some time at home and do some of the quiet stuff that i wouldn't normally do come and record a podcast things that would be difficult to carve out in a busy like working week but i go and when i can not at the moment but i go and play golf with my parents on a friday that's that's really nice for me to be able to go out and play golf with them on a friday um i like to play golf at the weekends um i don't you know have loads of hobbies anymore other than golf I think, ironically, don't do loads of baking. I guess you do you do that at work, and then I, we test bake. I test bake at least one or two of our products a month, so they get tested by all the staff and people take them home. We test them in loads of ovens. They get baked like twenty times before they get released as a recipe. And either me or Patrick does the final sign off. Um, it used to be Michelle that did the final sign off, but me or Patrick now test. So we test bake everything that comes out of our that goes into the shop. So so I bake a couple of things every month and. Yeah, I really enjoy cooking. Cooking's a cooking's a really important part of my life. Food is always going to be um really important important part of my life. But yeah, my work work life balance is good, I would say. I'm happy to, you know, hold my hand up and say and actually that's you know, it's a it's a culture that we try to give everyone updates in, you know, work really hard when we need to, but we don't expect people to work on those Fridays. We want people to go and have a three day weekend. It's really important. Like, I think, you know, having a, a job that's motivating and challenging but isn't everything because and it was it was everything when i really nearly ran out ran out of money and one of the things was thinking about everything being taken away from me just like that was was difficult to get ahead round. whereas um we've actually been more successful i think since we've you know got a decent work-life balance across the company fantastic well i think it's a wonderful story and i'm really looking forward to a uh my my baked in, uh, enjoying that this weekend, my uh, my products to test. But um, I, I think really particularly looking forward to watching you guys continue to flourish. Uh, and I wish you every success. I really appreciate your time and sharing your story with us this morning. It's been great to have you on. And uh, all the very best to you and your team for the future. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was, it was good fun. Cheers, Joe. All the best. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.